Hello everyone, it's Elizabeth. I have two updates for you before you listen to this amazing episode. First of all, Karen and I are bowling to raise money for the New York Abortion Access Fund, and we really hope you will support this great cause. For more information, please click the link in our show notes. And for extra credit, you can listen to episode 6 where we interviewed a former chair of the organization. Second, we recorded this interview at the end of January before Daniel Mallory Ortberg had publicly come out. Some of the pronouns in this episode may be incorrect. We've since talked to him, offered congratulations, and made sure he's still okay with us publishing this interview. We are so happy that he was so generous with his time to be our guest for this episode. On with the show. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com. You can tweet at us at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have, we're really excited to have uh, Mallory Ortberg on as a guest. Hi, Mallory. Hi, guys. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I would love to introduce myself. I am Mallory. I am the person of, of which you spoke. I am the one whose name was foretold in the prophecy and in the scrolls. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I think I'm on the show because you guys DM'd me at one point on Twitter. Does that sound right? Yes. That is correct. We did. Yeah. And now I'm here on your show, and that's the story. That's that's me. Yeah. So, listeners, follow your dreams. DM your faves. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, part of why we asked you to be on is you have a new book coming out, The Mary Spinster, and this will probably air sometime in March, which Mm -hmm. is around when your book is being released. We were able to read a limited preview on Google Books, I think what carries in this book, and what I love about, like, your writing in general is, like, just, like, from reading what you've written on The Toast, and even your Twitter is, like... The, the kind of like solipsism of your internal perspective. And I thought that was really cool. I was wondering if you wanted to kind of talk about how you managed to capture that so humorously. That is one of the great like preoccupations of my work, uh, I think, is the sort of like beautiful, like numbing uh, narcissism of just falling into your own thoughts, staying there forever. I'm a person who spends a lot of time online, and I'm also a person who's aware of a lot of their own worst tendencies. So that's like 80% of the book right there, you know what I mean? Like, I know how I get, so uh, I, you know, I just kind of extrapolate from there, which I, I realize is doing my work a bit of a disservice. It's not like I just sit down and think, what are some things I've thought lately? Great, it's a story now. That's not how writing works? No, no not especially, but I, I think the most dangerous forms of thinking for me are ones that seek to excuse what I know to be my own worst impulses in a sort of like hazy blanket excuse of, well, this is how I experience the world, or I am looking out for myself by doing such and such thoughtless thing, and I should never think about it from any other angle. There's a monstrousness in that that I think lends itself really well to this type of short story. I definitely feel like your book is capturing that at least the daughter's house is like way capturing that being in your head makes you weird <laughs> yeah and just just the ways in which kind of everyone thinks of themselves as being eminently reasonable like i will almost never tell a story where i make myself sound like the unreasonable person even if i'm trying very hard to maintain some sort of like objectivity when i retell a story between like 
myself with somebody else, if I experienced conflict, if I felt like somebody else did not think well of me, um, there's just this engine in my head that drives me towards describing myself as the most reasonable person there is. And anybody who experiences the difficulty is somehow falling outside of the you know, golden beam, just what that looks like when everybody is doing that. Um, again, it's you know, very, very upsetting, especially it's one of those people that has like, you know, uh, a fishtail and doesn't quite understand what a soul is, but definitely wants one, and specifically yours, and thinks they're being like super reasonable in going about and acquiring it. Yeah, I love how much your characters truly believe in their objectivity. I wonder actually, hearing you talk about this, if you take this into account as dear prudence. Uh, I was just column. thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because that's such a fiction, right? It's like, it's so much easier for me to think of myself as like, oh, I have this job giving people advice. I must be really good at seeing like all the different angles of the situation. I am sort of like the yardstick by which other people can measure themselves. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the idea of objectivity is, I think we all kind of know is something of a myth. Um, but it's the sort of thing where you're like, yeah, I know it's a myth, but not really, and not when it comes to me. I think it's very easy for me, especially as just the arbitrary holder of the inbox that people write their problems to, to think like, ah, this must have something to do with me and the fact that I'm generally right about everything, as opposed to just, this is the email inbox that everyone has been sending their problems to for many, many years, and I happen to be the person with the password right now. Well, I have to say as a, a reader that... I do appreciate your unique perspective and definitely see a difference in tone and, well, I don't want to be rude, but also in cultural competence from your predecessor. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's really cool. And also as somebody who's like studying to be a clinical psychologist, I feel like it's so cool to have like that separation between advice columns and therapy because some problems are actually pretty pragmatic. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. And I should certainly hope so. Like, I am not even a little bit a therapist. I am not even within spitting distance of therapy. Uh, so I, I hope very much that that's clear to anyone writing in. Like, this is not a substitute for therapy. I am just somebody with an opinion. Uh, I don't know you at all. But it is so useful to get an external perspective. I, hopefully. You know, hopefully somebody's getting something out of it. Did the Mary Spencer grow out of the children's stories made horrific? from the toast or uh, was this something kind of separate from that? Kind of. Actually, I, I, I think I could tell you like a, a, an edited version of the origin for this book, which is that essentially I wrote this book proposal out of spite. I was solicited to submit something for an anthology. And once I did, was told that there were already a couple of feminist retellings of something in there and they did not need another one. Which I was like, well, then why did you ask me in the first place? <laughs> yeah. It was a waste of all of our time. And I had been for a while, like, having trouble kind of thinking through, like, what's my next book going to be? And that one really lit a fire underneath me. I think within, like, two weeks, I had a book proposal to send to my agent and was just like, let's get this one sold because I'm missed. So, uh, yeah, at that point, it came together pretty quickly. Definitely that's where it had its origins, but there was a, a real shift in the sense of I went a little bit further afield with the books that are the stories that I chose for the book. And I also, I think I only ended up going with like three or four stories that had been a part of that series. And, and obviously, like after a certain point, sort of dropped the idea that I was going to try to make everything horrifying. But yeah, yeah, it was definitely closely related. 
You started tweeting uh, a couple of months ago now. It's uh, We're recording this in January of 2018. It's, it's going to air in March. But um, a few months ago, you started tweeting that you would go on anyone's podcast to talk about American Vandal. So that inspired yes! me. <laughs> so that inspired me to watch the show because I thought, so I said, this would be a great idea. So I did. And I really liked it. And, but I would like to hear your take on why it's the best show. <laughs> it is the greatest show ever made by human hands. And I will just like go to my grave screaming about what a wonderful show it was. Yeah, thank you very much for asking me about American Vandal. It's tricky, I think, to pull off an eight-episode season um, about a dick joke. And certainly when my friends that I saw it with for the first time described it to me, I was like, oh boy, I bet this joke gets real old real quick. And it did not, which was remarkable to me, like, especially as somebody who, like, a lot of my work does rest in parody, but, but hopes to be more than just, like, hey, you've heard of this thing, what if I made fun of it? Like, like that there's more to it than that. Um, it, it was one of the most beautifully rendered, like, taxonomies of a certain type of Southern Californian public high school that I've ever seen in my entire life, and especially as someone who grew up in a like a Southern California public school system for for a big chunk of my childhood, I, I felt like I was seeing people on a TV show that I had known my whole life but had never seen on TV before, and was like, yes, there he is. I've known that guy my whole life, and he's never on TV. And thank God he's here now. So some of it was just like the specificity of it. Like there's lots of stuff that if, if you're a big like kind of true crime podcast slash television show fan. I think there's going to be a lot of little details about the show that would appeal to you. But even if you're not, I think just the seriousness with which it takes like high school and kind of like figuring out where everyone is on the social order and determining like to what degree someone has insulted someone else is absolutely beautiful. For at least a month of my life, I felt like these were the only people I knew, the only people that I cared about. Um, like it meant so much to me when somebody would tweet at me like Alex Tromboli is lying and I'd be like yes you understand <laughs> a profound moral truth about the universe now uh, as a direct result yeah and it just it just spoke to something deep deep within me and I think I saw it like five or six times all the way straight through yeah I like found it randomly like what to watch on Netflix which is like I don't understand what this is but I'm really <laughs> into like a committed dick joke <laughs> and I was so glad that I did get into it. I think the moment that I thought to myself, like, this is actually genius. It's in the first episode. I believe it's the first episode. It may possibly be the second episode. But it's when Dylan is driving around uh, for his Postmates job, where he's delivering all the food and kind of talks about how he's actually spending money because he often gets, like, someone else's smoothie and then decides that he wants a smoothie. And he's been eating french fries throughout the sort of interview and saying, like, yeah, you can eat some of the fries, but you can't eat too many of the fries because then they notice. Um, and he <laughs> drops off the fries at somebody's house, and then there's two little side stairs, like, leading down from their door. And there's just this little moment where he, you can kind of see he kind of thinks about taking the stairs down, but then he just sort of falls off instead. It's not quite a jump. He doesn't <laughs> jump off. He's not showing off exactly. He's not trying to do something, but he chooses not to walk. And it's just arresting. I can't tell you how many times I stop and rewound that scene. Um, I, I know it sounds ridiculous. It's literally just the character doesn't take two stairs. But it's just like, yes, that is the kind of guy who is always skipping stairs or jumping when he could walk 
or like mini lazy parkour. Do you know what I mean? Like emotional parkour. Like the amount of work he will put into not doing work is inexhaustible. And that's never been the type of person that I am, but that type of person endlessly fascinates me. So Mallory, who did the digs? Who did the digs? I think the show is pretty clear at the end that the person, the persons rather, this is mildly spoilers, but I'm not going to name it. it. We can spoil it. Okay, great. Yeah. Spoil it. I, I mean, I think I think it's very clearly Krista Carlisle <laughs> and Vandalori. Yes. And yeah. I, I, I don't think it. that's ambiguous. I don't <laughs> think that's open ended. Um, I think they just make it very clear that they don't have sufficient evidence to like bring a case against her. But I I, I did not watch that thinking. Gosh, I wonder who did it. <laughs> <laughs> True. So I got weirdly obsessed with this show as well, and I can't tell you if it was a YouTube video or a Reddit thread, but somebody mentioned that her cast was on different legs in different pictures, <laughs> that she faked her injury. Yeah, I, I think somebody else pointed that out too, and it looked like a pretty like minor case of like screen mirroring at one point. Like It did not okay. seem like the kind of clue they were trying to leave behind. Right. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, part of what they are going into on this show was just like the obsessive way people will watch and rewatch shows like this um, and come up with a lot of different theories. Like there is a screenshot of a YouTube channel called American Vandal on American Vandal of people who were obsessively trying to figure out whether or not Dylan could have done it. So yes, absolutely. It makes a ton of sense that uh, like real time watchers of American Vandal are also like stopping and freezing every couple of five <laughs> seconds to see like, has anything changed? Can I solve this problem? Do you think there'll be another season? There will be another season because they have already filmed a trailer for it. It is set at a private school, and it seems to have sort of cruel intentions vibes, and I'm very excited. That's fantastic. Oh, I'm not sure if I like or dislike that. They're remaking Cruel Intentions, too, which I think was a perfect movie that they should never have touched. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, we'll see. I have a lot of faith in the American Vandal people. So, you know, for me, they could make the next series that, like, on the moon it could be a steampunk thing and i'd still be like look i'm reserving judgment until i see it my only problem is uh i need to figure out how am i going to get on the you know on the writer's room for the next season oh you absolutely <laughs> need to get on if there is a campaign for that i will mm -hmm. gladly commit myself somebody get me a meeting okay well you heard it here on feminist coffee hour <laughs> get mallory into that room um Sure, all of our friends in the feminist outer boroughs of New York City know the writers of American Vandal. Yeah, it's just going to be a matter of time now. So I also wanted to bring this up. I mentioned this when we first started talking, and there was like a maybe no, and then kind of a maybe yes. And I also want to reflect back that I have that same kind of process going on right now about whether or not this is anything I want to talk about. But you had published on Shondaland a product review of uh, GCTV Binder. And for our listeners who don't know, uh, this is a garment whose purpose is to flatten a chest that has boobs, primarily used by transmasculine people who have not or do not want to have uh, top surgery or, in the transmasculine case, a mastectomy. But it does have a variety of uses beyond uh, whether or not you're making a top surgery choice. <laughs> so um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it was... Um, what a pitch for that product, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, so if you buy this product, you need to cut your boobs off. Anyway, one of the things that really like struck me about the article was like it was really a deeply thoughtful description of the experience of kind of knowing that you want to try this, but not necessarily describing the identity that is embodied by that choice. And it really struck me 
we hear a lot of stories about like, I'm at the beginning of my journey, I know what I want to do, and like, let's go along, but I've definitely made this decision, or I'm at the end of this journey, and these were the steps I took along the way, um, and I feel like there's not a lot of like, public literature about kind of being in that area where it's like, I want to explore, I don't necessarily want to describe what it means, just kind of specifically putting on this binder made me feel something. <laughs> I thought that was like, a really great reflection of like, my personal experience at the moment. Um, and I, I bought the binder. Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. I don't write a lot of personal essays uh, for a very good reason, I think. I, uh, you know, haven't written one before or since. And part of the reason that I don't do it is there's a sort of endless follow-up to having written one where people will just sort of always ask you questions about how do you feel about this topic now, you know, two months later, six months later, a year later. It's just not something that I'm kind of looking for in my own work, which is not to say, by the way, you know, that, that you shouldn't bring it up, just kind of the way that often writing about something personal like that does seem to invite endless speculation about what kind of identity a person is interested in claiming, whether or not their narrative fits other narratives about similar topics, whether or not, you know, an initial disclosure, uh, for some reason, um, would uh, oblige the writer to make further disclosures later. Um, you know, all of those are sort of things that have to go into the decision to write something that personal. As you were saying, I, I had a very specific idea of something that I wanted to write, and I did not want to write anything more than that or beyond that. And I was grateful that I was able to do that. And for the most part, felt like the response that I encountered was fairly open, receptive, useful, interesting, thought-provoking. And I'm glad for that. It's anxiety-inducing, to say the least. Yeah. Super anxiety. It's like, it's very vulnerable, I think, to write something so personal for publication, I could imagine. You know, when you're writing about something very specific, oftentimes there will be a demand from an audience, not necessarily the audience, but an audience of, um, well, did you also mean this? Um, or when are you going to follow it up with that? And I don't believe that anyone needs to do that or owes a reader that, or that frankly anyone should have to arrive at a certain specific type of identity before they are willing to let themselves try something new or ask themselves a certain question. Because, you know, if that were the case, if that were the sort of threshold, it would be very difficult for a lot of people to do anything new. If it was like, no, you first have to sort out the identity, and then from the basis of that identity, um, these things are now available to you, rather than do these things so right? Are these things interesting, appealing, desirable to me? In what degree are they interesting, desirable, appealing to me? Um, and, and are there different ways that I'd like to configure my life around them. I think that when we explore our identity, a lot of the time it is really not from the top down, like, am I this identity, therefore I like these things. It's more like, what does this feel like? What does this mean about me? <laughs> you know, uh, and then working it through in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes just asking yourself the question, like, do I have an opinion about something that I previously thought of as natural normal, common, average, neutral, like, you know, stopping and thinking, do I maybe not feel neutrally about something that it never occurred to me to have an opinion about before, can be very just profoundly kind of shattering. It can really knock you back of just like, I did not think of this as a thing a person could have an opinion about, or at least as something that I could have an opinion about. And just allowing for that possibility feels enormous and kind of destabilizing. Yeah, and I, I could see also the 
the weight of that being so amplified by having such a public cultural moment. I think there's also something fascinating about, I think we're in a similar age cohort where we are versus somebody younger where these options of thought or like exploration are available in like what might be considered to be a more appropriate lifespan time frame, like adolescence, where you're really exploring your identity. I think it's really interesting to be an adult and to have not really been given that option until adulthood to explore your identity in these ways. And that like, this is a possible path that some people might choose if, if that works for them and if that's their desire. And so I think that adds some extra weight. Yeah, I, I think there's always ways in which, you know, anyone is continually surprised by their own self, right? And I think anytime something profound or, or, or shattering or, or that sort of questions certain principles that you've based the last couple of years of your life around, I think that there can just be this kind of idea that there's an age at which you have realized all the fundamental truths about yourself that you are ever going to realize. And I just don't think that's true, in part because there's no timeline on realizing things, and also because... I, I actually genuinely believe it is possible for fundamental truths about the self to change um, and for something to be deeply true at a point in your life and, and, and not true in the next does not mean that the new understanding is somehow less meaningful or attacking. So is there somewhere if you want people to visit online to find out more about your book? I, I think at this point probably just buy the book <laughs> uh, is, is the best to learn more about the book. I would uh, recommend that. March 13th, uh, you can order it uh, through a variety of uh, websites and bookstores and that's probably the easiest way fantastic what's your twitter handle mallory evil mal ellis m-a-l-l-e-l-i-s uh i'm on twitter at miss cherry pie p-i like the number pie and i'm uh karen u-h-k-a-r-e-n thank you so much mallory we really appreciate you taking the time to come on our show Political Flavors Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.